When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, dear friends. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am, of course, your host, Liv. So, I know I promised a final episode of Pride this week, but I'll be honest, everything just got away from me. This past weekend was my closest friend's bachelorette and took up every moment I had free, and last week I had a single day to prep last week's episode as well as some Patreon accompanying episodes. That's all to say, I'm sorry, I'm failing you a little bit this week. 
Today's episode is instead a rebroadcast of a favorite because, well, a tweet about Medusa's fate went fucking viral this past week and brought an absolute horde of new listeners my way. So I thought this was the perfect opportunity to re-air that episode as I simply don't have time to prepare a new one and all of you love it anyway. That said, Pride doesn't have to be just the month of June, so in July I will post another Pride episode. We've covered the major stories already, so this last episode will be a compendium of the shorter, less detailed LGBTQ stories that exist in the mythology. Doing an episode like that too, though, also means way more work for me because it means countless more sources and googling and trying to find these stories because they're not major stories, rather than one source like usual, which I can usually do in a quicker time period. If I'd tried to get it out this week, it wouldn't have been good or detailed, and I don't want to put out subpar episodes, and I don't think you want me to either. So please, enjoy today's episode on Medusa and Arachne. It's a wonderful one. And stay tuned, because next week we'll be back in the Odyssey, and after that, I'll do a magnificent LGBTQ compendium episode to cap off Pride. And particularly, before I play you this episode, I want to say that I don't hate Athena. Please don't think I do. She just handles things poorly sometimes, so we must call her out when she does. Thank you. Here's the episode from last summer about Medusa and Arachne. Episode 31, Arachne and Medusa. What did they really do to you, Athena? The story of Athena and Arachne is told primarily by the poet Ovid. I've mentioned him before, quite the magnificent writer, that Ovid. He gave us some of the most beautiful stories of mythology. But as you might remember, Ovid was a Roman, and so he wrote in Latin. He wrote in Latin, and he used the Roman names for the gods. And because, as I've mentioned before, I try to be a purist, I will use those names too. Though I will mention their Greek equivalents, so I don't confuse you all too badly. <laughs> Arachne is a young woman from Lydia, what's now Turkey. Don't try to sort out why I haven't referred to the Trojans as Lydians, because the story of them came before the Lydians, if I have my history and geography right. Otherwise, it's just a mythology thing. Just, you know, don't question it. Such is Greek mythology. Arachne comes from a simple family. They weren't particularly well off or famous on their own. But Arachne herself became famous. She is great at weaving. You know, the feminine skill. She would weave and weave, and she became known for her skills. Unfortunately, though, there's another woman who was also known for her skills in weaving. The goddess Minerva. In Greek, Athena. Arachne became so famous across Lydia for her weaving skills that everyone knew her name and wanted to watch her work, both while she's doing it and the final results. People were down with that weaving. They didn't have Netflix back then. Even nymphs and sea nymphs would leave their homes on vineyards and in rivers to visit Arachne and witness her skills in person. Arachne was so good 
and Minerva herself being known for just how good she was at weaving, that of course the comparison was made. People would say that Arachne must be a pupil of Minerva. She was just that good. Arachne, not apparently learning from stories of the past, denied she was a pupil of anyone. The scale was all her own, she would say. And I mean, I don't blame her for that. If you're self-taught and you're fucking awesome at it, you want the credit. It seems only fair. Though, still, one living through that time should perhaps pay attention to what happens to others when they compare themselves favorably to the gods. Spoilers, if you haven't listened to other episodes of this podcast, this is never a good thing. When people compared her to Minerva, Arachne would tell them, basically, let's see how good Minerva really is. If it's true that she is really better than me, I'll do whatever she wants. Truly not a smart thing to say. But does that warrant what's coming next? No, it doesn't. We women are always blamed for what happens to us. Sure, comparing yourself favorably to a god and being punished is not the same as wearing a short skirt and being blamed for being raped. Regardless, I'm blaming no woman for what is done to her by a volatile and angry person. When Arachne makes this not-so-well-thought-out comment about her skills versus Minerva's, Minerva goes down to see her. She disguises herself as an old woman, giving herself gray hair and a cane. She approaches Arachne and tells her what she knows from experience, that it's one thing to compare yourself to other mortals and say your skill is the best of the best, but when you compare yourself to a god or goddess, you're making a grave error. Minerva, as an old woman, tells Arachne to ask for real Minerva's forgiveness for comparing herself to the goddess. Ask her humbly and she'll forgive you, the disguised goddess tells Arachne. Arachne, though, pushes on. She tells Minerva, who's still disguised, that age has taken its toll on her, that this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. She tells the woman that she knows her skill, she knows the truth, she is better than Minerva. And if that's so wrong, why doesn't Minerva appear and prove it? Of course, this is a catalyst. The old woman abruptly changes her tone and tells Arachne that Minerva is indeed here, and she's ready to accept the challenge. Minerva gets rid of her disguise and shows her true form. Though not the goddessy form that would cause Arachne to burst into flames, it's not clear what the difference is. Basically, sometimes mortals burst into flames and sometimes they don't. Greek mythology is lacking in logical continuity, but that's beside the point. The point is, they would have a weave-off, or probably something more appropriately named. Something that conveyed the importance and not a stupid weave-off. But you know, I don't have a better name for it. As Minerva is transforming and showing herself, she shifts from an old woman into the goddess of wisdom and warcraft. And at that time, Arachne is surrounded by the nymphs that have come to watch as well as the Lydian women that are usually around her. No men, of course, because what would they want with lady things like weaving? The women and the nymphs all bowed in awe as Minerva shows herself. But Arachne doesn't flinch. She stays standing tall, still sure of her skills and not intimidated by Minerva's goddessness. 
Arachne, girl, read the room. The weave-off begins, and here Ovid bestows upon his reader quite the use of weaveology, that is, words and terms I don't understand, and description of a process I don't understand. How nice would it be to talk to the women of ancient Greece and tell them that I have no idea what weaving entails because in my generation, even though we still make less than men and are generally treated as lesser people than our male counterparts, we're able to decide to do things other than weaving and cooking and cleaning. Ah, how impressed and disappointed. They would be nearly 3,000 years and though equality still seems a far-off concept, at least we can do things like start our own podcast from scratch where we talk about all the bullshit the ancient ladies had to deal with. The times, they have changed. Arachne and Minerva weave away. They're both quick, and the weaving is delicate and detailed and beautiful. They ignore how tired they both get, fighting to prove themselves to be the best of the best of weavers. They weave in hues that are, quote, so delicate that they shade off each from the other imperceptibly, as when a storm is done, the rays of sun strike through the raindrops and a rainbow stains with its great curve a broad expanse of sky, and there a thousand different colors glow. This is some beautifully woven shit, my friends. Each woman weaves a scene into her piece. Minerva weaves the Hill of Mars, the Roman name for Ares, god of war, and part of Cecrops' citadel. She's weaving the scene of the controversy over which god would name Athens. The Olympians are there, watching. In the scene, Neptune, the Roman name for Poseidon, is shown striking his trident into the earth. You remember this story. Of course, in this Roman version by my main man Ovid, it's not a spring that erupts from where Neptune hits with his trident, but instead a horse. And also in the scene, Minerva weaves the image of herself with her helmet and her shield in all her glory. Where she strikes the earth, an olive tree appears. The scene she weaves shows her own victory in the naming and claiming of the city of Athens. This is the main image on the piece that Minerva weaves, but in each corner she depicts four more individual scenes. These show contests, instances where a human contested a god and what happened to that human as a result. One corner shows mountains, two mountains that were once people who tried to take the name of gods. Then a woman who Juno, Hera, turned into a crane for challenging her. Then another, Antigone, but a different Antigone. She also went against Juno and lost. She was turned into a bird, a stork. And finally, a man who had bragged that his daughters were so beautiful that Juno turned them into marble steps to her own temple. So the man spent the rest of his days embracing the steps as he cries. Really beautiful and uplifting stuff. Happy times. And all around the border, Minerva weaves an olive branch, her symbol, and ironically, one we know as peace. That symbol surrounds the otherwise awful corner pieces that Minerva has just woven. (laughs) 
Arachne, on the other hand, weaves into her piece the scene of Europa, the young Phoenician princess who was tricked by the image of a bull. The image Arachne weaves is so incredible that the bull and the waves it descends into look like they must be real. Europa is looking back as she sits on the bull's back. She's calling to her friends as she and the bull descend into the sea. Arachne is making a fucking statement here. She's not just messing with Minerva. She's not just saying she's better at weaving than Minerva. She's taking issue with everything the gods do to humans. If it weren't for this, I might be tempted to make the point that Arachne could have avoided her fate. She could have conceded that Minerva was better at weaving than her, but she didn't. She didn't because that wasn't the point. The point was that regardless of how good the humans are at anything, the gods always have to be better. The gods always have to fuck with the humans, both figuratively and literally. The gods are just making trouble, and Arachne sees that. She sees that probably more than any other human in Greek mythology. It's obvious to her. She's not just competing with Minerva when it comes to weaving skills. She's standing up for humanity in a way that no other human has done in mythology. So it's not just Europa that Arachne weaves into her piece. No, she also weaves Asteria. Asteria is a titaness. She was pursued by Jupiter, Zeus, in the form of an eagle. He picks her up and tries to carry her off to surely rape her, because it's Jupiter. But she isn't having it, and she frees herself from him and throws herself into the Aegean Sea just to get away. And Arachne weaves Leda, who Jupiter seduces and rapes in the form of a swan. And Antiope, a woman that Jupiter seduces and rapes in the form of a satyr. She bears twins from that fucked up union with the king of the gods. And Arachne weaves in Alcmena, a mother of Hercules, who Jupiter tricks by transforming himself into her own husband, Amphitryon. And Danae, who's impregnated by Zeus in the form of a shower of gold. And Aegina and Mnemosyne and Proserpina, the Roman name for Persephone, a woman on this piece who was kidnapped and raped by Pluto rather than Jupiter. That's the Roman name for Hades. And Arachne isn't done yet. She shows Neptune, Poseidon, who also transforms himself into a bull and rapes the daughter of Aeolus, a girl whose name we aren't given. And while she's on Neptune's awfulness, she also shows Basaltes' daughter, another girl whose name we don't have. And Medusa, mother of Pegasus, and Melantho, who Neptune rapes in the form of a dolphin, which is another story entirely. Guys, Neptune, Poseidon, whatever, he's fucking awful. Arachne shows all of this in a beautiful scene of incredible women ruined by the gods. And of course, I'd prefer not to use the term ruined. Certainly being victimized by a man doesn't ruin a woman, but unfortunately in this world, it does. The man gets off scot-free, the woman is ruined. Such is mythology and life in the ancient world. Still, Arachne continues. She shows Phoebus, the Roman name for Apollo, who takes Issy, and Bacchus, Dionysus, who takes Erigone. Arachne knows what she's doing. She's making a powerful statement about the power of the gods and how they use it to fuck over humans at every chance they get. Arachne is a fucking badass feminist. When she weaves the scene, she's showing that she isn't just fucking with Minerva. She isn't just being braggy or proud or whatever. She's saying that how everyone is treated by the gods is wrong. The gods are at fault, and Arachne is showing that in every possible way. And it is perfect. 
The scene woven by Arachne is utterly and completely perfect. Minerva herself can't find a flaw. It's stunning and flawless, and Minerva doesn't take this well. She can't find a flaw, and so instead, she just ruins it. She tears the cloth that Arachne is woven to shreds. Then Minerva takes some kind of tool that Arachne has been using to weave the piece of cloth, and she beats Arachne over the head with it. Minerva is losing it. She just doesn't want to lose. She doesn't want to be proven inferior by this human woman. She doesn't want this human woman to get away with showing the flaws of the gods, of showing how awful they are and what atrocious things they've done to the humans. Arachne, trying to get away from Minerva, but knowing she won't be able to survive the statement she's made, she grabs a rope and she ties a noose and she tries to hang herself. She doesn't want Minerva to get the satisfaction. She knows her fate and she's planning to do it herself. But Minerva, under the guise of taking pity on Arachne, stops her from ending her life. Instead, she sprinkles some of Hecate's magic over Arachne. The woman's hair and eyes and ears all fall off, and she transforms into a spider. She spins and weaves and practices her art forever. And for that single person who took issue with the fact that I didn't spell out that echo continually repeating herself over and over again is where we get echoes, I will tell you now that Arachne was the first spider, and her name is where we get the word arachnid. And so all nuance is gone. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forcus was a primordial sea god. Quito, a famous and terrible sea monster. When they got together to procreate, this results in the birth of three Gorgons, sisters, two immortal, Stheno and Urali, and one named Medusa, who is mortal. While the story of Medusa and her sisters exists throughout Greek mythology, from some of the oldest sources, including the patriarchal monster himself, Hesiod, this story, this particular origin story, comes from my main man Ovid, just like Arachne. You know what that means. Roman names for the gods. Medusa is stunning. A beautiful, unforgettable woman. Sure, she's the daughter of a primordial sea god and a straight-up sea monster, but she is beautiful. There are so many men after her, so many vying for her attention. Of course, though, with attention from men and astonishing beauty comes... hatred from the goddesses. Because, for the 100th time... These myths were thought up by men who all assumed that if a woman encountered another woman whom she might consider more beautiful, she would immediately hate that woman and wish all the tragedy in the world upon her. It's in our DNA, you know. Medusa's beauty is known all around, but there's one quality about her that is considered her most impressive asset. The best and most stunning thing about her is her hair. Medusa has magnificent flowing hair. And this is not the serpent locks you know of. This is legit, beautiful, jealousy-inducing hair. Medusa is so beautiful and her hair so incredible to behold that she catches the eye of one... Neptune. Poseidon. Neptune spots Medusa one day, and he knows he just has to have her. 
And we all know what that means. It means that because she's wearing a short peplos, or because her hair is styled in whatever way was particularly sexy for ancient Greek women, for whatever reason, she obviously deserves what is about to happen to her. It all stems from somewhere, friends. Neptune spots Medusa one day, and he begins devising a way to get what he wants. So, one afternoon, when she's worshipping in Minerva's temple, minding her own fucking business, just trying to support the goddess of wisdom, Neptune comes upon her. And he rapes her. Neptune rapes Medusa within the walls of Minerva's temple. Rapes her. Minerva, in all her glory, determines that this is a slight against her personally. She is a virgin goddess. This isn't something she's experienced herself, and it isn't something she wants to see. A woman has been raped in her temple. Raped. It's offensive, horrendous, an atrocity. Minerva hides her eyes while it's happening. She doesn't want to witness this. She is chaste. She is pure. Somebody has to be punished for this. Minerva determines that it is Medusa who must be punished for being raped by a god. As a punishment for being raped, you know, because that's definitely not punishment enough let alone punishment for doing absolutely nothing wrong. As punishment for being raped, Minerva turns Medusa's beautiful, flowing hair into snakes. Awful, terrifying, hissing snakes. So she hides. She hides because, fine, she also turns humans to stone with a single look, but it's also because a goddess turns her hair into snakes, making her less than fun at dinner parties. Medusa hides. She hides until one day a random man shows up with a sword, a shield, a bag, and winged sandals. On that day, the man uses the shield as a mirror so he doesn't see Medusa's face. She doesn't want him to see her hair as it is, made of angry, hissing snakes. She avoids him, but he's there to get her. He uses the shield so that she can't use her one form of defense, turning people into stone with a single look. This strange man who's appeared out of nowhere uses the shield as a mirror until finally he gets to her. With one swift motion, this strange man slices off Medusa's head. The snakes hiss and cry, and her head falls to the ground. This stranger, who appeared from nowhere, still avoids looking at her. Everyone has avoided looking at her ever since her hair was turned to snakes, in punishment for being raped. This has been her life. Her life ends with a slicing sound through the air, a thud on the ground as her head falls, and the snakes stop their hissing and lie still. And all that remains are children she never knew she had. From her headless body spring a man and a horse. Chryseor, the man, springs fully formed from the poor woman's neck. 
and the horse, with massive feathery wings, shoots out, flying up into the sky, testing his wings for the first time. Neither child, man or flying horse, ever gets to meet their mother. All because Athena is a fucking bitch who blamed women for being raped by awful men. It all comes from somewhere, people. Well, that got weirdly dark. Sorry, guys, I just went where the research took me, and it took me somewhere super dark. Seriously, though, Athena's awesome and all, and it's really cool that a woman was that important back then, and that she's remembered in such detail and with such righteousness to this day. But in so many myths, she's just so awful to women. Just incomprehensibly awful to women. She's so helpful to the heroes, and she does such wonderful things, and... She's one of the most well-regarded and well-talked about or most talked about women in mythology. And yet when she's actually with other women, it's just awful. Anyway, thanks for listening. Yay, being a woman. Isn't it super fun? Speaking of women, support one. That one is me. If you could go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, that is, do that if you liked this podcast. If you didn't, keep it to yourself. You can follow me for updates, nerdy shit, and vaguely relevant selfies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Myths Baby on all those platforms. Come say hi. Which also leads me to, I'm so sorry that I can no longer keep up with all your lovely messages. So if I don't answer you, know that I did read it because I read everything obsessively, but I just can't answer everyone anymore. That's not to say you shouldn't reach out because I do love reading everything you lovely people have to say. I also read all reviews because I'm starved for acceptance. So please, if you like me, keep doing those things. You can also support the podcast if you're so inclined by heading to my website. There I have a want to help page where you can contribute if you want. I also have some merch available, including simply a list of women that Zeus fucked over. It's actually quite nice. You'll find it connects well with today's episode. It's basically the 2018 version of Arachne's weaving. I'm basically Arachne. I'm basically better than Athena. I should stop. Thank you all for listening. I do love you all so. Please tell your friends about this podcast. Tweet about it. Share me. Let's grow this nerddom, friends. I'm Liv, and I super duper love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan... Millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.